This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. First John 5, 6-12 This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son, the Son of God, has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Well, good morning. It's great to be with everyone. I just want to start off by saying, don't be scared. Uh, I know verses 6 through 10 seem unique. They seem a little awkward, but hopefully we'll make them clear. But one thing that I want to be clear for sure is my goal for this morning. My goal for this morning is what I think John's goal has been in this entire letter, and he makes it very clear in verses 6 through 12, and that is this that the only place we will find life is in the sun. The only place that you and I will experience freedom and joy and peace is in God's son who we celebrate now in Christmas, uniquely in this season. John opens up with everyone, sorry, he says, this is he who came. What else are we celebrating in Christmas in the incarnation than he who came? So I wanna be clear that my purpose is John's purpose And that is, I want all of us, in whatever way is uniquely needed to us this morning, to leave here looking to Jesus for more life, looking to Jesus for encouragement. And if you were with us last week, John started verse one of this chapter and ended with verse five in last week's uh, section of scripture with this idea of believing, right, with believing. And we said, There's a content to belief, and that is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ. In John's day, like our day, there are many competing voices, right? I mean, if you listen to the radio, uh, if you watch TV, if you are on social media at all, I don't even mean voices relative to who is Jesus. I just mean voices telling you what you ought to believe about anything and everything. We're constantly being bombarded with things to believe. We're constantly being, even if it's subconscious, we're, we're constantly being asked to ask ourselves, is this reliable? Should I believe this? Can I believe this? And so John has been very honest and obvious that we should believe that Jesus is the son of God. And now he turns to compete against any uh, contradictory testimonies to who Jesus is. I've been told that when uh, CIA agents or uh, special services, when, when they are trained in knowing if a bill is counterfeit, that they're not even shown what a counterfeit bill looks like. They're just shown over and over and over what the characteristics are of a real dollar bill. 
And then when they see the counterfeit, it's obvious to them. Now, I don't know if that's true, but that would be awesome if that is how it's true. But that's what John is doing. John right now is saying, let me tell you who the true testament comes from. Let me tell you how reasonable your faith is. It's because the one who testifies to you, and that is God. So the passage today in verses six through nine describes the nature of God's testimony, and verses 10 through 12 describe the results of receiving God's testimony. That's the passage. Six through nine, the nature of the testimony which comes from God, 10 through 12, its results. So the passage is about why it's reasonable to believe John's message about Jesus. But as one writer put it that I read this week, he says, how can we speak like this in a prevailing cultural atmosphere of relativism where one does not speak of what is true, but rather of what is meaningful for me? Where one does not speak of right and wrong in believing, but of values of believing. See, everything in our spiritual and religious discussion today increasingly is being reduced to our subjective experience. But the Bible won't let us divorce our subjective experience from a testimony of historic content, something that actually happened. See, it matters who Jesus is. It really matters who Jesus is. And that's what John wants us to talk about today. But you realize all of us with all these competing voices are being shaped We're being shaped in a certain way to have a hermeneutic of suspicion. In other words, we're shaped to be cynical. We're shaped to find the angle. We're shaped, interestingly, to make sure whatever we decide to believe fits whatever we want to believe, right? This is what research looks like now, right? I'm gonna Google it. I'm gonna Google that. First link that comes up that agrees with me, jackpot. Got it. That's research, right? As long as my truth pleases what I want, then that's what I believe. But John won't let us do that. But all of us Christians need continual encouragement to embrace both the historical actions of Jesus' life as ministry, as well as the experience, the personal experience of believing. And some of us are prone to one side, and some of us are more prone to to the other. Some of us are very prone to wanting more of the experience, and I would say amen to that. And some of us are more prone to saying, I want to know more about the history, the doctrine. I want that. Amen to that. And guess what? We need each other. We need each other to bring those together, which is exactly what John would have us do. One is not better than the other. They make it complete. And this isn't just true for Christians. This is a problem that all humans, all people who know things have to wrestle with. We all know and experience that whatever we believe in life, if we have truth, if we have historical content, uh, not just faith in general, but we're believing in something or believing that something, if we have that and experience of that thing, that's when we experience true humanity. That's when we experience true human knowing because that's what knowledge is meant to be. And we'll talk about why that is more later. So in today's passage, we'll see that John teaches us that believing in Jesus is to believe he has come and to receive the benefits of his coming. Is that clear enough? All right, we're gonna make three inferences from this testimony. You see, what's the point of testimony? The word testimony six times in our passage. What's the point of testimony? John's clear. The point of his testimony is that not only that we would believe the son, but that we would have eternal life by believing the son. And so the point of testimony is to believe. So three inferences today. The first one is this. 
Belief has historical evidence. Look with me in verse six. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. What in the world is he talking about? Well, first we have to see that he uses the word he who came. This was sort of like a technical word, right? People were waiting for someone of God to come, a Messiah, a Christ. They were waiting for the coming. And both the false teachers in 1 John and John believe in the same Jesus tradition. That is that a man named Jesus came on earth and was at least anointed by God. They both believe up to that point. But John wants to be really clear that we get the content right, that who was Jesus? He says, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by water and the blood. We don't know exactly what he means. Historically, there are three main interpretations. More and more people uh, are pulling together all that is similar in the same interpretation. And that is where I'm gonna take us this morning. But before I say that, I want us to know that whatever he means, his audience would have known right away. Because he's using these words, he doesn't feel like he has to describe what it means to be born of water or born of water and blood. Whatever the confusion was, uh, the false teachers knew what they were saying, and the original audience knew what they were saying. Okay, so what we have to do is we have to try to figure out exactly what he means. And as commentators would say, and where I think is most accurate, is what he means by water is to understand water referring to the baptism of Jesus. All right, so what does it mean to refer to the baptism of Jesus? What happened at the baptism of Jesus, right? Well, the voice of God speaks over him, anointing him to start his mission, that he's been sent by God, he's received the spirit, and the voice of God speaks over him, testifying to his identity. So this is the beginning of his salvific mission. And what does it mean that he has also come by the blood, right? Well, this is pretty unanimous throughout all interpretations, and that is the blood is referring to his atoning sacrifice. So what John is saying is to believe in Jesus, to believe in Jesus as the son of God, is to believe that he came not just as the anointed teacher of God, not just as the anointed one to do miracles and to teach on behalf of God, but also to die on behalf of sinners. You see, it's both and. This Jesus in history did not just come to teach, but he came to die. And John will not let us remove these. And he will not let us, he will not let his church in Ephesus here remove these two, no matter what the false teachers are teaching. The blood refers to the atoning sacrifice of the cross. And these teachers were trying to say, that part's not true. I mean, no one's gonna deny that Jesus was a unique teacher and that he was anointed by God at this baptism and he had the spirit. But he didn't die for us. That's what they were teaching. And John says, if you don't have these two together, you don't have life in the son. You do not believe that Jesus is the Christ. So while we may never know the exact problem with the thinking of these false teachers, the correction presented in verses uh, six and eight addresses at least two false ideas, okay? The first false idea, I'm just gonna leave us with the first one actually. I decided to strike the second one because I didn't have time to explain it but the first one's the most important. So here's a false idea for sure that we know John is trying to correct, and it's this. The significance of Jesus was focused only on his teachings and miracles 
as opposed to his death and resurrection. And this suggests that Jesus was nothing more than a prophet or a religious teacher. It seems at the crux of it, that is what in this verse, John is speaking to. And John is saying it, he did not just come in water, he came in water and the blood. He's saying he wasn't just a teacher who did miracles, he wasn't just truly teaching on behalf of God, but he is God who died as the Christ for his people. Both of those are together. Okay, so what does this mean for us today? What does this mean for us right now that Jesus came in the water and the blood? I think it means a lot of things, but I want to connect it to one of the things John has said and one of the things that, one of the sermons that has impacted me the most in this series, it's it's a sermon that Ted preached on the reality of our hearts condemning us. You see, to believe that Jesus came in water and blood is to believe, yes, in historical evidence, reality. But it's also to receive that reality. Verse 10, which we'll get to further, but he says this, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. So remember I said it's most fully human to believe that and to experience your belief, right? Both and. John is clear that even if we believe that Jesus is the Christ and are experiencing that, there is something else we will experience. And that is our heart will condemn us. There is a part of us that even when we rest upon Jesus, our heart, the flesh part of our heart will still condemn us. And what are we going to do? Well, one of the things that Ted said is that when our hearts condemn us, he showed us that the word reassure our hearts really means to persuade our hearts, to speak to our hearts, to grab our hearts by the scruff of their neck and face it to the fact that Jesus died on the cross, that Jesus was the anointed one of God and Jesus was our atoning sacrifice. And when our hearts condemn us, John is saying, if you lose either one of those, if you lose the fact that Jesus came as the anointed one of God who died on your behalf and that you can experience that, if you lose either one of that, you lose any chance of assurance. You lose any chance of experiencing freedom and life and you cannot reassure your heart. Because what are you gonna reassure your heart with? If you're already downcast, what are you gonna look to? Well, you have to look to the fact, the testimony of the spirit, John says, that Jesus came and died. He died for you. And he died for me. And he died for anyone who trusts in him. And the way we reassure our hearts, the way we persuade our hearts is to take our hearts and point our hearts to the evidence God so loved the world, the same writer, John, that he gave his only son for us. And so an application for us is John would have us keep these together. We need both. We need the experience, but when our heart condemns us, we have to look to the reality that this happened and we can take our heart and say, look at that. You, and this is what Ted said, shut that hell up. All who deny the incarnation, whether or not they believe that the person of Jesus underwent a change at baptism, which is probably what these people believed, this is not a trivial error. If you get Jesus wrong, you have no hope. Jesus was the anointed one of God and he died on our behalf. If the son of God did not take himself, our nature in his birth, which we celebrate at Christmas, and our sins in his death, he cannot reconcile us to God. He can't. Now, 
Of course, even if we have evidence and testimony, does that mean that we'll automatically believe? I mean, does that believe? Does, is that all we need? Just more evidence, more testimony? I'm reminded of a seminary professor of mine who was also a pastor in a local church. Once a month, he would have a dinner for seekers. And so the rule was, is that anyone in the church could come as long as they were in relationship with a non-Christian who was seeking. And it couldn't be a bait and switch, right? The person you invited had to know they were coming to hear about Jesus. And once a month, they would host this dinner and the professor or the pastor would speak about the historical reliability of Jesus or answer questions. And he came in very tired for one eight o'clock class and he was telling us why he was so tired. The night before was one of those dinners. And after one of those, at one of those dinners, uh, one of the people who was seeking to know more about Jesus, they stayed until almost midnight talking about the resurrection. And by the end of the night, the seeker said to my professor, okay, I believe you, I'm convinced. All the evidence really seems to point to the fact that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. I can't deny it anymore. And so my professor's like, yes, he's gonna put his faith in Jesus. But then the next words out of this guy's mouth, it still rocks me when my professor said this. He said, I'm convinced all the evidence points to the fact that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. I believe you, I believe your testimony, you could say. And then he said this, but that doesn't mean that he's God. That doesn't mean that he actually died for my sins. Sure, it seems like all the evidence points to the fact that it's a historical anomaly that really happened. I can't explain that, but there are plenty of reasons why that may have happened. So of course the answer is no. Even if you believe evidence, it doesn't mean automatically that you've received the implications of this, that you've properly interpreted the testimony, the way God has acted. You see, I think that in our culture, this is dangerous because asking questions sometimes can become an all-consuming passion which is never satisfied. You see, it's all about the chase, not about the truth sometimes. It's all about the right questions. We're not really interested in the answers. And I think one of the reasons is because in our day and age, a major problem with understanding ultimate reality is that people believe that ultimate reality is impersonal. You see, what happens if ultimate reality is impersonal? It means that no one or no person is gonna hold you ultimately accountable for what you choose to believe or not believe. So when you hear the resurrection, you say, oh yeah, I think it happened. But you know what? The whole Jesus dying on the cross for me thing, that doesn't really resonate with me. And since it doesn't really resonate with me, then I just don't, I'm not gonna believe it. You see, if re- ultimate reality is personal, if there's a personal God, Choosing not to receive God's testimony is not morally neutral. You see, it's not. It's a sin against a person. Uh, missionary and theologian Leslie Newbegin puts it this way. I thought it was so helpful to me this week. He says, the Bible teaches an ultimate reality that is personal. God's address to us is a word conveying his purpose and promise, a word which may be heard or ignored, obeyed or disobeyed, Faith comes by hearing and unbelief is disobedience. And this leads us to our next inference of believing testimony. Not only is belief historical evidence, but belief has moral significance. You see, if you choose to believe, that's a moral issue. It's not merely an intellectual issue. If you choose to disbelieve, 
It's not merely an intellectual issue. It's a moral issue. Why? Because we live in a personal ultimate reality. That's why. There is moral significance. Verses seven and eight, let's look. For there are three that testify, the spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. Verse nine, if we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his son. Let's stop there for a second. What is he talking about? These are three that testify. Well, in the Old Testament and in the time of this writing, there was a cultural norm that if three people uh, gave testimony that agreed, then it was reliable. So particularly men in this culture, if three men gave reliable testimony that agreed, then it was trustworthy. And John says, yeah, that makes sense, right? If you believe men, which is a good thing, if, if there are three witnesses to the same thing, then you do right to believe. But then he says, but, but in this case, we have a testimony that's greater than men. And that is God. You see, God is John's ultimate authority. It's very important that we see this. John, who's been bearing testimony to who Jesus is in this entire letter at the beginning, he says, we are the ones who saw him, who touched him, who were with him, who listened to him. But here, John is saying, don't miss this. My testimony is not ultimately rooted in me. It's rooted in God. It's rooted in his authority. John is saying that you are right to believe the testimony of men, but this is greater, the testimony of of God. Now, it could seem strange to us, right? Because we only see one person. These are three that testify. The Spirit, that's a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. And then we have two things that are not persons. It seems like John is following in the tradition of Jesus. At some point, Jesus looked at the people who, would know, who wouldn't believe him and said, well, if you don't believe me, at least believe the signs. Those are, those are a testimony to the fact of who I am. And so it seems like John is picking up on that and he's saying, the Spirit is testifying, and the spirit who is truth, his testimony agrees with reality. The fact that Jesus was the anointed one of God and the fact that Jesus did die on our behalf. So what John is trying to do is John is trying to root our understanding, our reasonableness of belief on the fact that it is God who is the ultimate testifier. As one commentator notes this, The Christian is, by John's definition, one who has heard the New Testament testimony, has recognized it as God's interpretation of the significance of the life and death of Jesus, his son, has internalized it as their own belief, that's verse 10, but the rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not a morally neutral act. John would not look favorably on the pluralistic, culturally centered view of religious belief that is so popular today. That one's belief is what is true for you, but has no claim on me. Precisely because the apostolic testimony about Jesus is God's testimony. To hear it and not believe it entails making God a liar. You see, this is true for us in so many areas in our life. The fact is, is that there are areas in our life that we currently are choosing to live as though God is not trustworthy. We're currently choosing to, to, to live in certain ways, in certain areas of our life to, to block off certain sectors in our hearts and say, mm, I don't think I'm ready for you to come there because I'm not exactly sure if I can trust you there. I can trust you so far, but I can't trust you that far. 
See, to choose not to believe God is not merely arrogant or haughty, although it's definitely those things. It's a personal attack on the character and reliability of God. And that's ultimately what John is saying, is that belief has moral significance. And we all struggle with this. All of us, every single one of us right now may be struggling at some level by doubting God's goodness and his timing and his wisdom and in all other types of things. What is it for you right now? Where are you doubting God's timing, his wisdom, his goodness, his love? I love what Ted said earlier. God just doesn't say, I forgive you and roll his eyes at you. God loves you. You're God's child. And it breaks my heart when my children choose not to trust in me. And I know all of you parents, you feel the same way. When I can get over the fact that I'm mostly mad that they're inconveniencing me, honestly, there is a part of me and sometimes it's larger than others that's more heartbroken because they just don't trust me that I have their best intentions in mind. What are we gonna do when we doubt God's goodness? Well, I think in these times, the word and community are crucial. The word. We can look to the testimony of God. We can look to the Bible. We can look to this word that we trust and we can see all the ways that God has been faithful in the past, all the ways that God has made true to his promises. And it encourages us and all of a sudden it resonates with the testimony that he's put in us. But sometimes that doesn't work either. And we need the word and we need community. You realize that that's why we emphasize community so much at New City is because community is a means of grace. Community is a way that God reassures our hearts, that God convinces us that he is worth trusting because he uses other people to speak into our lives. And we watch him be faithful in other people's lives and we watch other people bear witness to his goodness and to his timing and to his care and to his love. And it, and it comes in and it resonates with us and we begin to warm and we begin to believe and we begin to grow and we begin to trust. You see, the Christian life is not about me believing. It's about not only about me believing. It's about me walking with brothers and sisters on a mission and encouraging one another along the way. And so when our hearts condemn us to persuade our hearts, we have to be honest with the fact that our choosing to disbelieve has moral significance. It's not just cognitive disagreement. It is a sin against a personal God. So first, John wants us to know belief has historical significance or historical evidence. Belief has moral significance. And here's the last inference. Belief has eternal implications. Let's look at verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Up to this point, John has emphasized God's witness concerning the person and work of the historical Jesus, but here he emphasizes God's testimony concerning the benefits that we receive when we trust in this son of God. The benefits. I told you at the beginning, my purpose today is that all of us would walk out of here experiencing the life in Jesus a little more than we were when we came in. And this is where we're gonna hopefully have that happen. In 1 John, eternal life 
is not simply unending extension of the life we currently know. It's not just living forever. This week, I had lots of conversations. A family member of mine passed away, and um, all of us have experienced this. People aren't sure exactly what to say, and they start talking about things that they have no idea about, and they start sentimentalizing eternal life. It's not sentimental. Eternal life is serious. And eternal life isn't only in the future, it's now. And I don't know of anything more important in the word of God than for us to ask the question, how do I receive eternal life? There's lots of wonderful things we learn in the scriptures about how to live, how to serve, how to enjoy life, how to experience God's good creation, his gifts, how to live out our calling in meaningful ways. The Bible has so much to say about all of those things. But at the center, not at the top, not at the bottom, at the center of all of that is how do I receive eternal life? That was the mission of Jesus. In the Bible, having Jesus Christ is eternal life. Having Jesus, eternal life is identified with Jesus Christ. And because God's gift of eternal life is given in his son, it follows that he who has the son has life. And having the son is closely related to believing in the son and believing in the son is closely connected with accepting God's testimony. But is having the son a synonym for believing the son? Because look, you see what he says here, right? Whoever has the son has life. And I was asking the question, well, what does it mean to have the son? Because I wanna have the son because I want life. Is it a synonym with believing? And we don't know only from this passage, but uh, all the commentators were very helpful in pointing me to John's gospel here. Same author. Pointing me, pointing us to the language Jesus uses of abiding. And I'm gonna read two passages from John. John 14, Jesus answered him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. You see, to have Jesus, you don't have Jesus like you have a cold. You don't have Jesus like you have $10 in your pocket. You have Jesus like when you receive him, the father and the son come to dwell in you by the spirit. God dwells in you. That's what it means to have him. And because God is life, we have life in the son. John 15 Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. You see, the abiding language has significance for us here. To have the son means to be indwelt by the son, something which viewed from the human perspective is initiated when people believe in the son. To have the son is to have eternal life because the son himself is eternal life. And this is eternal life, that you may know him, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And this is where I wanna leave. I want us to enjoy life. I want us to enjoy the fact that we have life now. Eternal life has come into the present by the giving of the Holy Spirit. So let's ask Jesus, what does it mean to have eternal life? Jesus says, 
in John 4, to have your spiritual hunger and thirst satisfied is eternal life. He says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. What would it be like for you to walk into a room and not have to immediately size yourself up against other people to find some type of security that says, I'm okay, I'm okay. I belong here, I'm gonna be okay. I don't have to prove myself. What would that be like? The only way that can happen is if your spiritual hunger for identity, for meaning, for security is filled up by receiving life that is in Jesus. Eternal life is to be raised up on the last day and to live forever. John 6, for this is the will of my father that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. What would it be like to live your life without fear? What would it be like to live your life to know that life that comes in my God, in Jesus Christ, has so many benefits for this current life, but it doesn't expire at death. Every other offer of life expires at death, except the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what he says. Eternal life also is this, to have the light of life so that one does not walk in darkness. John 8. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but we'll have the light of life. So many times I need wisdom and I need help. And things matter. It matters how I raise my kids. It matters how I speak to all of you when you come ask me, your pastor, for help. I have no help for you except to point you to Jesus who is the light of the world. And it's not just me, the pastor. When we live in community and go to one another, All who have the sun have the light of life. You can all, we can all point people to Jesus. We say, I don't know, but I do know that you have the sun. And God will direct you. He has your right hand. And after this, he will receive you to glory. That's Psalm 73. Eternal life is to have abundant life. John 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. What would it be like to experience life currently abundantly and not fear? I read this study. I don't even know how this is true. I've shared this before, I think. Something like 50,000 thoughts a day every one of us have. And about three quarters of those are you telling yourself what you don't want. You know, it's a hard thing to answer the question, what do you want? We're really good at saying what we don't want, right? I think I've said this too before. Like when I play golf, I know exactly what I don't want to happen. But it's harder for me to envision what I want to happen. What would it be like if you and I could be so free because we have so much life, the source of life in us, that we live more, we live increasingly filled with life as opposed to fear. That's part of eternal life. Here's the last thing I have for us today. To have eternal life is to know that though we die, we may live. John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And listen to what Jesus says right after that. He says, do you believe this? Jesus just asked the question. Do you believe this? And I wanna ask you guys that today. Do you believe this? Do you believe that your current thriving in life and your future hope beyond death 
into eternity rests not on you at all, but on the overcoming work of Jesus Christ. And to have security, to have life now is to rest and receive upon that. To have that dwell in you, life. That's the gospel. And John is abundantly clear to these friends of his, this church. To have Jesus is to have life. And it is so reasonable to believe that Jesus is life because we're basing it on God's testimony. Let's pray together. Father, you are good. You are a giver. You are abundantly able to keep us secure, to give us life, to give us hope, to give us peace. We believe in you. We confess that your gift of faith is a gift to look away from ourselves, that your gift of faith is to trust more and more in Christ. Forgive us, encourage us, and send us out into the world with life to offer to others. In Jesus' name, amen.